Turn in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 19. We're continuing our series to live in the presence of God. And we're continuing through a section of the book that's known as the Holiness Code. We started Leviticus 19 last week and we're going to continue it, finish it this week. And so this morning we're going to look at unmixed metaphors. Leviticus 19, 19 through 37. Well, Moses continues here with various laws that explain how Israel was supposed to live. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick survey through the various laws in the rest of this chapter in order to hear them and kind of get a basic understanding. But then we're going to zero in on one particular verse that has three laws in it and dig deeper to see what God's teaching his people through those particular laws. So jump in with me, Leviticus 19, starting in verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. So that's the verse that we're going to look at in detail this morning, so I'm going to skip it for now. We'll come back to it and spend the majority of our time there. Verse 20, if a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. So here, We have a violation of a woman who's a slave intended for marriage to a man, but she hasn't yet been ransomed or freed. And the basic idea is that compensation or restitution is made for the offense. It's treated as a sin requiring atonement through a guilt offering. So what that means, which is different from all of the surrounding cultures, not only were free Israelites protected by God's law, so were vulnerable slave girls. Verse 23, when you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy and offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. So, Fruit on a new tree is not good for the first couple of years, but once it started being good, then the first fruits were given to God. It's very similar to the tithe. And then verses 26 down through 31. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. So these rules, what kind of ties that group together is it's a number of things that were practiced by pagan nations as part, generally, of the cult of the dead. These things were done to commune with the dead or to access their power. Well, we don't eat bloody meat to access the dead. 
today, so you can eat a rare steak because you're not doing it to gain the life power of the thing that you're eating. You still should not interpret omens or tell fortunes today because those things are by definition accessing the demonic or the spirit world, but you don't have to grow out your sideburns and you can trim your beard because today that has nothing to do with the cult of the dead. Cuts on the body, think of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and they're cutting themselves to try to convince the gods or those who are dead to act on their behalf. Tattoos, they aren't used today to win the support of the dead. But kids, if your parents say no tattoos, that's the end of the discussion right there. Remember the chapter began with honoring your parents. Verse 29 is probably speaking of giving young girls over to the service of the worship of false gods. Verse 30 tells us, again, to honor the Sabbath and to honor God's sanctuary. In other words, don't defile God's sanctuary with any of these kinds of practices. Verse 31 outlaws necromancy, communing with the spirits of the dead. And you can think here of Saul going to the witch at Endor to call up the spirit of Samuel. All right, verse 32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So these verses here speak of giving proper treatment to those who could easily be taken advantage of. The elderly are to be honored. This is important to remember, kids. For instance, as you interact with your grandparents or others, the elderly are to be honored. I was very tempted to make this the verse that we focused on today because this is so not done in our culture today. Foreigners also should be treated well. Just like the command to love your neighbor, here we're told to love foreigners as ourselves. Verse 35, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. So just measurements are necessary to give true justice. We talked last week about what biblical justice looks like. And here you're specifically told not to take advantage of people with false weights. Okay, then the end of verse 36. <clears throat> I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. So all of these commands are based on a covenant relationship that God has with his people. He rescued them from Egypt, he made them a nation, and now they are to faithfully obey his laws and to be holy as he is holy. All right. We're going to dig in now on verse 19. Okay, you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Sometimes we read an Old Testament law and it just seems very random or purposeless. What's the reason for God to say that Israel was not supposed to mix their seeds or mix their animal breeds or wear clothing from mixed fibers? And this is the kind of thing sometimes that skeptics point to to try to poke holes in Christianity. See how ridiculous Christianity is? You've got laws like this that don't make any sense right next to laws about homosexuality and then they try to say that we're supposed to follow those laws today. So it's really helpful 
If we as Christians can understand these laws, why did God say this? What is this law about? Does it still apply today? And I'll just say this too. I was trying, I was, as I worked on this message, I was struggling to find ways to illustrate things. And then I kind of realized that's because the entire message is unpacking an illustration. These laws are an illustration that God is giving to his people. And so uncovering the meaning of the illustration is getting the point of the law. And, and God does this. He, he did this even in creating the world. The way the world is designed, he's communicating things about himself and about the way the world is supposed to work. So Paul gets a letter from the Corinthians asking questions. And they're asking questions, for instance, about the resurrection. And in the resurrection, are our bodies going to be like the ones we have now? And he says, haven't you paid attention? Like, haven't you ever planted a seed in the ground? The, what comes up from the seed is the same kind of plant as what you planted. So he's talking about the resurrection, but he's kind of telling them, you should know this. And how should they know it? By observing creation. Because God has written right into the creation illustrations of the way the world works, of, of his design. And so even when he comes in and he takes things in creation and gives specific laws about it like this, he's telling us something about himself. And so it's not just an illustration to be skipped over lightly. We should actually dig in and figure out what it's talking about. Even if we're allowed to wear a cotton poly blend shirt today, we still should know why did God give this law? What is he telling us about himself? Because that still does have relevance for us. It's there for a reason. It might be helpful for us to review the kind of the three big categories of Old Testament laws. There's the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil law. Remember, the moral law is based on God's character, and so it never changes. Don't murder, don't steal. Ceremonial laws pointed forward in some way to Jesus the Messiah. Priests, sacrificed, festivals, all of those things. Right, we don't make animal sacrifices anymore because that aspect of the law served a purpose, pointing forward to Jesus, and now that Jesus has come, it's done. It's served its purpose. Civil laws regulated the civic life of the nation. They came in the form of case laws. So once you understood the principle underneath the specific case, then you understand how to apply that law today. And the particular cases are different today but the principle remains. It's what the Westminster Assembly referred to as the general equity of the law. But there are some laws that are not always easy to see which category they fit in. They seem to regulate civic life, so you'd think they're part of the civil law, but they actually have a prophetic aspect to them. They're pointing forward to Christ or to the new covenant that Christ brings. So once Christ comes, those laws are no longer in force. And this morning, I want to show you that Leviticus 19.19 fits in that category. It was pointing forward to Christ, and now that he's here, it's no longer required of us. But what we see illustrated in the law is still helpful to us to learn. So in this verse, we have laws about three different categories. We've got animal husbandry, agriculture, and textiles. Let's start with animals. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. 
The word cattle in the Bible can sometimes be a general word for all domesticated animals, and that's probably how we should read it here. The law says that Israelites' animals should not be allowed to interbreed. Each kind should be kept distinct. And the law doesn't even say that the Israelites couldn't own or use animals of mixed breed. They could import them, but they couldn't let the breeds mix in their land. Now, what would it take to obey this law? Put yourself in their sandals for a minute. What would it take to prevent this interbreeding from happening? Well, it would be natural for two breeds of cattle to mix if they have access to each other. So you would have to artificially keep them separate. You'd have to build fences. You'd have to have one kind of cattle on one piece of land and a different kind of cattle on a different piece of land. What about the agriculture law? Well, it's similar. No mixing seeds. No making hybrids. Again, they weren't prevented from owning or using a hybrid if it was imported, but they were not to mix them themselves in the land. So what would it take to obey that law? You'd have to have separate fields for different crops. One piece of land for one kind of seed and another piece of land for another kind of seed. Well, both of these laws fit into a category of what we call seed laws or inheritance laws. That's what they have to do with. Back in Genesis 49, at the end of Jacob's life, he's giving blessings to his sons. And when he comes to Judah, he gives a blessing that contains a prophecy about the Messiah, the promised king, that it would come from the tribe of Judah. And here's what it says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now the phrase, until tribute comes to him, could also be translated as, until he comes to whom it belongs. What would the it be referring to? It would be referring back to the scepter or the ruler's staff. Okay, until he comes to whom the scepter really belongs. There's one coming, he's an ultimate king, and he's the one the scepter really belongs to. Okay. It could also be translated until Shiloh comes. Shiloh being a proper name that means he whose it is. So again, it's the same meaning, he whose the scepter is. So the prophecy was that the coming king would be from the tribe of Judah. And that meant the tribes could not be mixed. They each have their own distinct inheritance. So they're supposed to remain distinct, not simply because they're descended from a particular son of Jacob, but because looking forward, there's a distinct inheritance for each tribe. So these first two laws in Leviticus 19.19 represent tribal separation or holiness, tribal distinction. There's a close relationship between the land and the inheritance. And I'll show that to you from scripture in just a minute. But this is, for instance, why eunuchs could not inherit land in Israel. They have no genetic future, no possibility of passing on the inheritance. So they can't inherit land. Turn with me for a minute to Numbers chapter 36. 
Okay, Numbers is the book right after Leviticus, <clears throat> Numbers chapter 36. And while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background to what's happening. In Numbers chapter 27, <clears throat> the daughters of a man named Zelophehad come to Moses asking for a judicial ruling on their case. Their father died and had no sons. He had only daughters. And that's a problem because the inheritance is passed on through the sons. So these sisters are asking Moses if they can receive the inheritance. Moses brought their case to the Lord, and the Lord said, yes, these women can inherit the land. <clears throat> and so we say, okay, problem solved, right? Not quite. There's one more issue, and that's what we come to in Numbers 36. What if the daughters of Zelophehad marry someone from another tribe? Then the inheritance, the land, would transfer to that other tribe because the inheritance is passed down through the men in the family. So look with me at what happens here in Numbers 36. The heads of the household come to Moses. They say, okay, the Lord said that the daughters of Zelophehad could inherit, but pick it up in verse 3. But if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. And their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers." And Moses commanded the people of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the people of Joseph is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best, only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. <clears throat> so no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance." Hopefully you get the point. Moses says it like 17 times in there. <clears throat> the land can't be transferred from one tribe to another. So it was important for the tribal land to stay in the tribe. God divided the land. God divided the inheritance. <clears throat> and each tribe is therefore to remain distinct in the land. Okay, it's the land of Israel, but you've got to have separate pieces of property for each tribe. Now, all the tribes <clears throat> share the same confession of faith. They all believe the same thing about God, but they're to be distinct for the purpose of land and inheritance. Because one day, the Messiah was going to come from the tribe of Judah. All right, as you look at Leviticus 19.19, 19, the animal husbandry law, no mixing the breeds, symbolize that tribal distinction. Yes, you're all part of the same nation. You all share the same faith. It would be natural to marry people from other tribes because you all share the same important things. But the tribes, particularly the land inheritance, were to remain distinct. So that's pictured in the law against mixing breeds or mixing seeds. 
Okay, the same is true for that law about mixing seeds. Both laws have to do with the land because they both require distinct pieces of land in order to obey the command. Distinct and separate pieces of property for different breeds of animals. Distinct and separate pieces of property for different seeds. And this picture of the distinct and separate pieces of the land of Israel held by each tribe of Israel. Now the law about clothing, mixed clothing, is similar, but it's got a little different application. This distinction is made not between the tribes of Israel, but between Israel and the other nations. Okay, it's not just this law is not just referring to any kind of mixed fibers. It's very specific. It's talking about mixing linen and wool. Now that doesn't come across in most of our translations, but the Hebrew word here means a kind of cloth made from spinning linen and wool together. Linen comes from flax, it's a plant product. Linen was what the priests were to wear. And the priests represented the whole nation of Israel. So linen represented the nation of Israel. In fact, after the exile, the priests were actually even forbidden to wear wool at all. That's Ezekiel 44. Wool comes from animals. When the Bible speaks of the Gentile nations, it often does so in terms of different kinds of animals. And here, wool represented the non-Israelite nations. So God's law prohibiting garments made from linen and wool combined pictured his expectation that Israel would remain distinct or holy. They were not to be like the other nations. Remember in chapter 18, you're not to be like Egypt where I pulled you from and you're not to be like Canaan where I'm taking you. You're to be different. You're to be distinct, holy like God. So where the animal law and the seed law were tribal distinctions, this law represents a confessional separation, a confessional distinction. Israel confesses faith in Yahweh. The nations worship false gods. They're to be distinct. It's interesting, Deuteronomy 22 gives these same three laws together as a set. So both in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, they come together. The laws of the seed and the animals show that the tribes of Israel are to remain distinct from each other. And the law against mixed clothing shows that Israel is to be distinct from the nations. Now, to answer the question of what these laws mean today, we have to understand what kind of laws they are. Are they laws whose purpose was to point forward to Christ and the new covenant? In other words, have they been fulfilled? And the answer to these questions is yes. These laws are fulfilled by Christ. And so now it's our task to see how Christ fulfills these laws. First, let's look at Hebrews 7. Go there with me in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 7. And while you're turning there, the, I'll just remind you, the message of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than the Old Testament tabernacle, the Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament priests, the whole Old Covenant. He's superior. And at this point in the letter, the author tells us that Jesus is a better priest because he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek not Levi. 
Now, Melchizedek is this mysterious figure that comes on the scene without any genealogical information. We don't know where he comes from or who he's descended from, but Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek, and Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything he gained in battle. And the author of Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek is superior to Levi. Levi is who the Israelite priests are descended from. So Jesus being a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, has a superior priesthood to all of the old covenant priests. So Hebrews 7, follow along with me starting in verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. Aaron's descended from Levi. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to a different tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So the author emphasizes here that Jesus is from Judah, not Levi. Remember, the tribes had to remain distinct in the land. And Jesus' priesthood is a new and better priesthood. The priesthood of the tribe of Levi is done away with. And we're told that when there's a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law. That can't mean God's moral law because his moral law never changes because his character never changes. But what does change includes the Levitical land laws regarding the tribal lands. Jesus transcends the tribal boundaries. He's a priest, but he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. So how do we know that the laws of land and seed are part of what changed with Jesus' arrival? Turn with me back a couple of books to the book of Galatians and chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at several different verses here. Galatians 3. This is kind of like one of those, I don't know, mystery or clue things where you have to follow, you know, the path all the way through scripture to kind of uncover all that you're trying to uncover about this image that God has given. All right, Galatians 3. For starters, look at verse 7. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Okay, so identity as part of Israel is now confessional, not genetic. It's by faith, not by birth. And if this is the case, then tribal distinctions no longer hold meaning either because the true Israel is made up of Jews and Gentiles together, all who have faith in Jesus. When you became a Christian, you didn't become part of one of the 12 tribes. You just became part of the people of God. Next, look at verses 16 to 18. 
As we read, note that the word offspring literally is the word seed, okay? Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring or seed. It does not say and to offsprings or seeds referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring or seed who is Christ. So pause for a second there. When the promise came to Abraham regarding his offspring, that promise was directed to one particular offspring, Jesus. Okay, hold that in your mind. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So verse 16 tells us that the promises, the inheritance promises, the land promises, were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular, who is Christ. Remember too, that further promise that we've noted that Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah and the needs then for the tribes to be distinct. Now verse 18 clarifies that this is talking about the inheritance. And the inheritance is tied to the land. The inheritance comes by promise, not by law. So when God talked to Abraham, he gave him a promise and that was 430 years before the law that we're talking about this morning. He gave Abraham a promise. And so the fulfillment of it is based on promise, not on law. Because when the law comes, it doesn't change the promise. The law then has a different purpose, okay? The promise stands behind Leviticus 19.19. Leviticus 19.19 is a law, but the promise, 430 years before that, stands behind the law, and the law is an illustration of the promise. The promise is fulfilled in Christ. The promised inheritance has been given. So Paul says in Romans 4.13 that the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Do you see it? The inheritance promised to Abraham was never just the land of Israel. The inheritance, according to Paul, Romans 4, is the whole world. And the promise of this inheritance is not by law, but by faith. So the law about keeping the tribes distinct for the purpose of inheritance in the land of Israel was a picture of something greater, the inheritance of the whole world, which the true sons of Abraham, Jews and Gentiles who have faith, have now received in Christ. So Galatians 3 verse 19 then says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions 
until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So this tells us that the law was added because of transgressions, crossing boundaries that shouldn't be crossed. We could even include in there, in this context, tribal boundaries. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So now that the offspring, Christ, has come, this part of the law no longer has force. It was always an illustration based on a promise pointing forward to how God was going to fulfill the promise. In the Old Covenant, a eunuch could not have an inheritance in Israel, but in the New Covenant, Philip meets with the Ethiopian eunuch and explains Christ, and the eunuch is made a partaker of the inheritance because of faith in Christ. The Apostle John writes that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Adoption as sons, full rights of inheritance by faith. Confessional, not genetic. By faith, not by birth. One more passage will help us to see that Christ has fulfilled these land laws. Mark your place in Galatians 3 because we're coming back to it. So keep a finger there or a bookmark or something. And turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. In this passage, we see Jesus come to his hometown of Nazareth. This is near the beginning of his ministry. And he's going to quote the prophet Isaiah to explain what he, Jesus, is himself here now to accomplish. We're going to start in verse 16. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So far, so good. Right? But listen. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. When Jesus quotes from Isaiah, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he's speaking of the year of Jubilee. God had set up a 50-year cycle for Israel. Every seventh year, the land was to have rest. So don't plant, don't harvest. And in the sixth year, God would provide an extra harvest to cover you for the seventh year when there was no planting and harvesting. So the seventh year could be a year of rest. Now after seven sevens, okay, 49 years, the next year, the 50th, was the year of Jubilee. In that year, all of the rural land in Israel returned to its original family ownership. Here's how Leviticus 25 describes it. Just listen as I read. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. And in it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. So, picture this. You're an Israelite. And if you're in Israel and you get into debt and you decided to sell your land in Israel, what you were really doing was creating a long-term lease. If it was 40 years till the next Jubilee, then you would price the land as a 40-year lease. If it was only four years, you'd price it as a four-year lease. But in the Jubilee year, the land always returned to its original family ownership. This is another way that God ensured that tribal separation and the integrity of the land inheritance. In other words, tribes literally couldn't get rid of the land allotment that God had given to them. So when Jesus says here in Luke chapter 4 that he's announcing the year of the Lord's favor, he's speaking of the jubilee. And not just any jubilee, but the jubilee that this jubilee law was pointing forward to. It's good news. It is liberty. Liberty from debt. Note that when the year of Jubilee began, it began on the Day of Atonement. Why? Because the atonement pictured the debt, the sin debt that we all have. And Jubilee is being given liberty from debt. And that liberty is only possible because of atonement. So Jubilee begins with atonement. Just like Jesus is the ultimate atonement, Jesus is the ultimate jubilee. Because of his once-for-all final atonement, there is once-for-all final jubilee for his people. But the inheritance is not just the land of Israel. It's the whole world, remember? Israel and Israel's land was ever only a shadow a picture of what God was ultimately doing in Jesus. And there's two aspects to this that are helpful to understand. First, Israel was disinherited because of their rejection of the Messiah. 
This is why the people in Nazareth reacted so strongly to Jesus. They were right with him until he started talking about Gentiles like the widow of Zarephath and Naaman of Syria. Because Jesus is now saying that the Jubilee had arrived and it wasn't just the Jews who were going to be included in the promised inheritance. And so the Jews rejected Jesus because of it. So Israel was disinherited because of their sin of rejecting the Messiah. Jesus told stories to show how Israel had time and time again rejected the message of the prophets and now that God had sent to them. And now that God had sent them his son, they were rejecting the son as well. Matthew 21, 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. What's the fruits? It's belief in Messiah, Jesus. And remember the principle that Leviticus has taught us that when sin builds up in the land, the land vomits the people out. Right from the beginning, Adam and Eve, they sin, they get kicked out of the garden. The Amorites, once the iniquity of the Amorites was full, they're vomited out of the land and Israel takes the land. Israel is temporarily vomited out of the land in the exile to Babylon. This is a pattern in scripture. And now Israel's sin had built up and they would be vomited out of the land, disinherited. Jesus warned about it in AD 30. You can read it in Matthew 24 and it happened in AD 70. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, these things will not, these things will take place before this generation is gone. 40 years, that's a biblical generation. AD 70, it happens. So Israel's disinherited. But, second, believers inherit the whole world. We already saw from Romans 4, that's what the promise to Abraham really signified. All those of faith, Jew and Gentile, are the true inheritors of the promise to Abraham through Jesus. So do this for me. I'm going to give you a list of four ideas. Just hold them together in your mind while I read the next Bible passage. Here's the four ideas. Number one, Jesus is the Messiah from the tribe of Judah. Number two, Jesus makes atonement through his sacrifice as the Passover lamb. Number three, the identity of the true people of God is those who are of faith from all nations. And number four, the inheritance is the whole earth. Now listen to Revelation 5 and the vision that John has. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
What the seed laws and the land laws, these inheritance laws, were always aiming at has now been fulfilled in Christ. So these laws in Leviticus 19 are no longer in force today because Jesus has fulfilled them. We can see the same thing with the clothing law much more briefly. If you're still holding your place in Galatians 3, look there again. Okay, Galatians 3. And I want to start at verse 23. Now remember that the clothing law symbolized the nation of Israel remaining distinct and separate from the nations. In Galatians, Paul is writing and he's dealing with a group of false teachers who want to take these new believers and make them Jewish converts. He wants to make, the, the, these false teachers want to take these Gentile believers and make them obey all of the Old Testament Jewish law, including the ceremonial law. Paul's responding to this. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until this coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. Literally that word guardian means tutor or schoolmaster. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the question is, what clothing should you wear now? Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So now that faith has come, the new covenant, you are all sons of God, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. And verse 27 says that if you were baptized into Christ, then you have put on Christ. Jew and Gentile wearing the same clothing, Christ himself, or the righteousness of Christ. And verse 29 says, if you're Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You inherit the promise because of Christ. So there's no need to keep Israel distinct as a nation from the other nations, because the true Israel the sons of Abraham are marked out not by genetics, but by faith. The clothing laws no longer apply either. Well, if these laws no longer apply to us today, then why spend time talking about them? Why do we do this this morning? And the reason is simple, really. They point to Jesus. They tell us something about him. And if it was important enough for God to design the laws, these signs, to draw our attention to it, then we should pay attention. The animal law and the seed law kept the tribes distinct. Jesus fulfills that in at least two ways. First, he's of the tribe of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah was the royal line, and Jesus is the true king. He's the king of kings. And the Lord of Lords, he's above all other powers. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And that means that we owe him our full allegiance, our loyalty, our honor. 
That's why we sing when we come together. We honor him. That's why we spend time talking about him. And that's why we obey his law. So when you're tempted this week to break God's law, remember who this king is. And remember that you owe him complete allegiance. Second, Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi, but he is our high priest. And his priesthood is superior to the priesthood of the descendants of Levi because he's distinct from them. Since he's our high priest, he represents us before God. He made the offering of himself in our place. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. Right now, he stands in the presence of God the Father and advocates for you. He defends you. He prays for you. The clothing law told Israel they needed to be distinct from the nations, holy. But in the New Testament, we learn that the true Israel is all of those, Jew and Gentile together, who have faith in Jesus. So ethnic Israel no longer needs to remain distinct from the other nations. But that doesn't mean that the need for holiness is gone. The true Israel, the church, is to be holy. We're to be distinct. As we saw last week in 1 Peter 1, Peter tells the church, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then, in the next chapter, he tells the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's language that used to be applied to Israel. Now it's applied to the church. Why? Why have you been made into a holy nation? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus is our true king, and he's our great high priest, and the right response to that is that we live as holy people so that our lives proclaim his excellency. And that's what the laws of Leviticus 19.19 19 are ultimately about. They're pointing us to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at these laws in the Old Testament, sometimes they do seem so incredibly distant from us. Things that are from a different world, different part of the world, a different era, and a different way of life. And so it is a challenge for us sometimes to get back uh, into the mindset of those to whom these laws were originally given. But I pray that you would help us to be diligent about studying your word because the reward is great. When we dig into your word, ultimately we see you. We see your excellency. We see that you've called us to be a holy people. I pray that we would do that and that we would fulfill the purpose for which you have called us to be a holy nation, that we would go out and proclaim the excellencies of your son, Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.